Hello, welcome to Grace Hills Church. My name is Simon. I'm one of the pastors here. Super glad that you are joining us online today as we continue in our study in the book of Acts. Uh, we are entering in chapter five. We have been kind of chugging through the book of Acts, and we're in a really kind of a hard passage. I'd say one of the harder passages to read as you look at the new church. And, and so we're going to jump into it and see what God would have for us. Uh, I, I remember when I was a kid, uh, in high school, I went on a lot of missions trips. Uh, I went all across the United States. I went through different countries and Mexico and Australia. And I remember one of the times we did this national parks tour, we would go and we would communicate the gospel through song and dance and things like that. And one of the places that we ended up was Yellowstone National Park. Beautiful park. And I remember at each stop we'd go to, we'd have a little bit of time to explore, to see what was going on. And I remember seeing Old Faithful and going, yep, there it is. It's, it's doing what it does. It's being faithful. And I remember walking around all the different like sulfur lakes and flats and remembering the smell of egg everywhere, no matter what you could do. But what I really remember the most and what I kind of as fond of as the bison that were there. So someone would call them buffalo. I think they were actually technically called bison. I'm not a, a zoologist, but the bison were there, and they're huge animals. They make cattle look small, and they are massive, and they are hairy, and they're just weird looking. And I remember thinking, I really want to document these animals that I've never seen before, and that I was so intrigued. And so my friends and I used our very old, outdated uh, cameras to try to get a picture of it, but you realize you're just not getting close enough to get the picture of the animal. And so we thought we should probably get closer, um, but you know, really perspective is key when it comes to large animals. So we decided that the best way to show how big and massive these creatures were that God had made was to stand next to one and even touch one and then get a picture of that. Not the brightest idea, not the sharpest tool in the shed we were as, as young men. So we slowly got close to this one bison who was away from all the others. And as we were getting ready to touch the bison, he had clearly had enough. And that was not going to happen for him. So I had never seen a large animal move that quick in my life. But he spun around and immediately started charging me and my friends. Luckily, by the grace of God, we were near a bunch of trees. We were able to kind of dart into the trees where the buffalo couldn't get to us, and no one got hurt. Now, with that story, I'm going to ask you a question, and, and I can't hear you because we're doing this online, but do you feel bad for me? Does your heart break for me? Do you feel sorry that that animal was trying to attack me? Now, I, I can't hear you. But truth of the matter is, you're probably, you don't feel sorry for me at all. You probably think, when you make dumb choices, you get dumb prizes. And that was a poor choice, Simon, that you made to try to touch that animal. Now, what if I just said, but it's okay, I just wanted to be close to that creature, and I wanted to really experience God's beauty, you, you still wouldn't care. It reminds me of the show that was out a long time ago. It's called When Animals Attack. And it would always be some, some man or some woman who had these really large apex predators, uh, man-eater type animals, whether that's sharks or bears or lions or tigers. And inevitably, they would be messing around with this huge, powerful animal, and it would attack them. And we would watch this show, and it was never that we were um, angry 
for, for the animal, right? We were never mad at the animal. As a matter of fact, you're like, well, that's what you get. If you're going to do that, there's going to be a problem. It's like when we watch circus trainers with animals. If you, are we surprised that if you slap a lion in the face that eventually it may attack you? Well, no. We don't expect animals to act differently than how they've been designed to act. They have big teeth and claws that are meant to eat and devour other animals. And if we are going to put ourselves in harm's way, why would we expect anything less? Now, I say all of that because when we think of God, why why is it that we get frustrated? Why is it that we get angry or concerned and think there's something wrong when God acts in His very nature and in His very character when it comes to sin and how He deals with it? Like, why, why are we surprised how God views sin and how He responds? Well, today, we come across one of those moments, and uh, we can be really quick to attack God instead of truly understanding who God is and who we are when we take advantage of God's grace and God's mercy. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to follow along. It'll be at the bottom of the screen if you want to watch it, but we're going to start in Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and have not lied to man but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, as we, as we press into a passage that can be difficult to understand, as we press into a passage that can maybe cause us to ask a lot of questions, Lord, I ask that you would answer those questions today. I ask that you would illuminate our minds that you would illuminate our eyes and our, and our ears to hear you more clearly as you communicate the truth of who you are, that we would see you for a holy and just and all-powerful God, and that we would see sin for what it really is, uh, is a rebellion and distrust against you, a perfect and holy and just God. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just speak through me, that you would use me in mighty ways, that you would keep me from being a distraction, that I would be one that points to you in all things. We love you. We praise you for what you're doing. And these things we pray. Amen. Let's 
Let's take a look at the story a little bit and understand what just happened and why God did what He just did in this particular passage. See, we're, we're coming off the tails of this beautiful picture of what the church looks like and how they had all things in common, that they were putting their brother and their sister's needs before their own, that they saw all as equal and all had the right to care for and to uh, take care of and to give in a way that reflected something that, that no one had ever seen before. Like God's people were living like Jesus and the Father did as one. And that's even what we saw last week, that Jesus prayed for us to be one as the Father and Him are one, that we would look like that, that we would be giving glory to God in everything, looking like and acting like Jesus did here on earth. Then we see that they are giving sacrificially, just like Jesus did with us. And so we're starting to live out what it means to be a Christian, little Christ. We're doing that. Well, then, what we didn't talk about last week, that we didn't really hit on, we read it, but we didn't talk about it, was this young man named Joseph who, because he is a new creation, because God has made him new, because he is now living in a different way than he once lived, he was given a new name. It's the common name that we would know him as we go through the rest of the New Testament, and that name is Barnabas, and that means son of encouragement. It could be that the church was encouraged by how he gave. It could be the fact that he is always encouraging others throughout the church, but there is something about him as a new creation in Christ that became a son of encouragement. And so what we see is that he sells property and he gives all the money that he got from selling that property so he could serve the body of believers. It's noted in the Bible because it's actually a big deal that he loved God so much and he loved God's people so much, he was willing to serve them any way he could, as much as he could, because he wanted to reflect Christ in all that he did. It's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be motivated and moved by the Holy Spirit to give in a way that's so sacrificial. See, this this picture is laid out, and it's just before this next section in 1 through 11, is that it's the contrast of what's about to happen. Now, we've been talking about contrasts as I've been here over and over again. There's light and dark and right and wrong and good and right and holy and unholy and righteous and unrighteous. We use these pictures, and it really is a depiction of what it means to love and worship God and what it looks like when we don't love and worship God. So all of those things start to play out, and this is no different. It's, it's going to show us this contrast of what it means to love God appropriately, sacrificially, and what it means to be selfish and to try to steal God's glory for ourselves. Now, you have to understand that this idea of having all things in common was actually uncommon in that day and in that age. That what we see is that they were living in such a way where it wasn't just about the social status of taking care of each other. It wasn't just about uh, family they were taking care of. It was everyone. So this giving, this commonality that the, the Christians had revolved around being in the family of God through the blood of Jesus and that they saw everyone as equal. And they saw everyone as being family, and that they did that. So this was across all the spectrums. So from the rich to the poor, from the old to the young, to the wise to the foolish, they were all connected. See, in that day and in that age, that's not how the cultures worked. You took care of you and your own, and maybe those within your same social class. And so to see this was so radically different. 
It was so outside of the box. It was so unnormal that it stuck out like a sore thumb. And when people saw this kind of living, it drew attention to those that lived this way. Then we see this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They also had a piece of property, very similar to Barnabas. And they sold it as well, very similar to Barnabas. And they wanted to give it to the church, just like Barnabas. But this is where the story changes, and it's different. It says that it shows their hearts and what was going on in their hearts. And to be perfectly honest, it's what happens in the hearts of all men and women. This happens to us all the time. It says they kept back some of the money for themselves. Now, that's not the problem, right? The problem is, is they pretended to give all of it. What they were doing in that moment is they wanted to look righteous, and they wanted to look like Barnabas, and they wanted to receive the accolades that Barnabas got for being truly righteous and selfless in his attitude. George MacDonald said this, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. See, they wanted the look of righteousness without the self-sacrifice of righteousness. They saw that Barnabas was getting noticed, that maybe because of that, he was looking like he was more of a leader in the church, in the congregation of that time, and they wanted that as well. It's a common trap that we can fall into ourselves. We look for others to make us feel better about ourselves. We look for something to feel better. Or maybe to put it a better way, we want to be accepted by others. But if you're a Christian, then you need to remember that you have been accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That you don't have to prove yourself to anyone anymore because Jesus has already done that for you. That is, all the acceptance we need is the acceptance of the Savior, the acceptance of the Father. We don't need it from other people to make us feel like we have value, to make us feel like we have worth, to make us uh, seem like there's some kind of righteousness within ourselves. We don't have that. That comes from Christ and Christ alone. And what's happening is when we start to do that, when we start to look for our acceptance, our worth, our value in something other than Christ... In essence, what we're saying that Jesus' death was not enough to please God, and we need to do more than what the cross actually offered. Do you see why that becomes problematic? So what happens is they lie to Peter, and then Peter calls them out right away. He points out just what was happening. Instead of being filled with the truth of the gospel, they have been filled with the lies of Satan. And, and Satan is a key part in this, but it's the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve. You can either choose to believe the lies of Satan, or you can choose to reject them. We can be like the first Adam and say, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense, Satan. Or we can be like the second Adam, Jesus, and reject that with God's word. Hear this. If Satan isn't being effective attacking from the outside, he will attack from the inside. Think about this. Satan is so crafty that he's going to use the very thing that was showing God's transformational power in men and women. This idea that they were becoming self-sacrificial. They had rejected the fact that they think that money provides for them. They have realized that God provides for them. And, they are, and he's going to take that very idea 
And he's going to use that to twist it, to make it about how great, great they are and not how great God is. See, Satan will use anything that he can, any means necessary to destroy the church, to destroy God's people. And hear me really clearly, Satan wants to destroy the church. He hates us being in close relationship with God and close relationships with others. It says so in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It shows us that Satan is always looking for a way to destroy us, and he is smart, and he is wise, and he is observant, and he knows where our weaknesses are, and he was pressing into with Ananias and Sapphira in that moment. See, and this is what you got to hear. The church is called the pillar of truth, and Satan is trying to destroy that with lies. Lying is how he has always worked. He is the father of lies, it would say in the Bible. Oliver uh, Wendell Holmes wrote, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. See, Peter tells them, Ananias, this was your land. You can do anything you want. You're not being forced to do this. You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to give it, but you lied so you could look holy. And it was the sin of lying that is the problem taking the very thing that God was about, being selfless, and turning it into them being selfish, making God's things about them instead of Him. So we see that He falls dead right on the spot. God deals with His sin and judges Him. Then we see a few few hours later, Sapphira walks in and shows up, and and I kind of love what Peter does here. Um... Peter asks her a question, and it's almost as if he's really hoping that the Holy Spirit's going to convict her heart in in such a way that she'll come clean and say, you know what, no, we didn't actually, and and we thought this was going to be good, and this is a sin, this is wrong. It's like he's given her an opportunity to repent, to say what's happened. We see this over and over again in the Bible that God always asks questions. I think that Cain is a great example of that, of what's going on. There's all the, did it with Adam and Eve, like we just see this throughout the Bible. Well, she says, yes, this is what we paid, and this is, uh, this is what we got, and this is what we gave. And Peter says, why have you agreed to test the Spirit of God this way? We see this with the Israelites when God talks to the Israelites. Why do you test the Lord in such ways, wondering why it's going to go differently? And then the same thing happens to her that happened to her husband, and God judges her sin. And it says that great Fear came across the whole church. And this is the first time the word church is used in the Bible as it talks about the entirety of the church. We saw early on that there was great power that was done by the apostles. Then we saw there was great grace that was taken care of. And now we have great fear. There was power from the Holy Spirit. There was grace among the people. And now there's great fear because something has gone the wrong way. And they see the God of the universe for who he is. Now, we have to ask the question, 
Why don't we like this passage? Why don't we like these verses? Why don't we like this story? Why does it leave us feeling weird inside, a little, a little concerned, a little frustrated, a little at, at, at odds with ourselves when we read it? Maybe you're feeling that right now. Uh, I know I was talking to, to someone this week, and they said, you should skip that passage. I said, I can't. It's in God's Word. I have to, I have to, we have to press into it. And I really feel like the problem that we have with this passage is that we think deep down inside that God has done something wrong. And by saying that God has done something wrong, we're saying that God's not perfect. And if He, if he is wrong, we're saying that He's, well, He's mostly good, but He's still flawed because He made a mistake. And then we're saying that God if he's making mistakes, that he's acting in a sinful way, which means God is imperfect, which means God is sinful, which means God is just like us. Do you see the slippery slope that we go down when we start to do this? See, the, the problem is that, that God would use a word to describe himself, and everyone who comes in contact with him uses this word to describe God, and it's holy. Um, Isaiah 6.3, Revelation 4.8, Psalm 77.13. Actually, all of um, Psalm 99 talks about this. The word holy is used to describe God. It would say, holy, 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 the angels, the, the seraphim cry out when they talk about God. As a matter of fact, the word holy is used 595 times in the Bible. It's a word that we should probably understand and become more familiar with. And when it talks about it, it's talking about God. It's talking about His people, things that are devoted to Him. And I believe that it is this misunderstanding of God's holiness that we fail to grasp that leads us to our problem of doubting Him and His goodness when it comes to passages like this. Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, and I, I do reference it a lot. I think it's a fantastic book if you want to study and learn theology, says this. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Now, you already may not like that definition already, especially the back end, but we're going to get there. We're going to break it down a little bit. But think about this for a, sec for a second. That means that there is no sin, no fault, no brokenness, nothing impure in God whatsoever, not even a hint, not even a, a speck of it is in His eye, meaning that He is truly perfect in every way, that His ways are always good, right, and perfect, that His ways are always best, that He is never wrong, that He is always right. See, that's what makes Him right, that He is perfect, that He is pure in every single way. If you were here on Christmas, we, we talked about the word holy. That, that means set apart, different, special, unique, not like anything else, holding more honor than all the other things. That, that is God, He is perfect, and we are not. That's why we're separate from We're nothing like God. God is so different. He existed before time. He has always existed. He will never not exist. Like His who he is, is is pure and perfect in every single way. He is the all-powerful creator of the entire universe. He has such power in who he is that he can literally speak things into existence. Think about this. He created time. I don't even have a category in my brain 
for the fact that there was a time when there was no time. I don't even know what to do with that. Everything is measured by time. Yet he was before that and he existed it. He, he said, this is what time is. This is what day is. This is what night is. This is what everything looks like. Everything you see, sense, feel, smell, taste, touch was made by him through the power of him just saying, make that. That's God. That he is pure and that his pureness or his goodness is so intense that impurity cannot even be in his presence without being destroyed. Like, and it's not because he's, he's, he's bad, it's because his goodness is so great that impurity cannot even be anywhere near him without him judging it immediately. He is the source and creator and sustainer of all life. He holds it in his hand. He has determined the days of our lives. The other thing that we need to see is that if God is perfect in every way, it actually makes sense that he would seek out his own, his own honor and his own glory. Because to seek out anything else would not be perfect and right. It's just, it's just the logical way that we go thinking about this, that of course he would seek out his honor. If he is perfect and everything he does is absolutely perfect and right and pure, why would he seek for something lesser? That would cease to make him perfect, wouldn't it? He's not going to highlight something that's not as good. So if he is the only one that is perfect in all ways and he is so pure in all things that we want his, and so his honor should be the thing that is lifted up. See, we don't like that because we use that when we think about other people. It'd be narcissistic to think that someone else should get their own honor and glory because we know that they're flawed, we know that they're broken. This is not so with God. See, and here's where the problem really starts to play in. Our problem is that we don't want to admit that we might be wrong. That, that we're not right, that, that we're not perfect in some way. Isn't that kind of how we are? I mean, think about it. Who likes to be wrong? No one likes to be wrong. We want to be right. We think that we know best. And so what happens is, when we read something in God's Word that we don't like, or that we may disagree with, that leads us not to trust God, and it leads us not to trust His holiness. And then we try to figure out a different way that seems right to us and what we would do if we were in control. See, we call this sin. That's the definition of sin. Not trusting God, not believing God that He is good, right, and perfect in everything. As much as we may not like this passage, it's actually the right thing to do. It was the right thing because God said it was the right thing to do, and God did it. And if God is a good, holy God who's loving, who is not sinful, He can't do sinful things to us. He does what's right, and that's a hard thing to get your mind around. Now, we need to understand, God hates sin. He, he hates it so much because it's in complete contradiction of who He is. That is why he is to judge sin when it's in his presence. He can't have something that is in opposition to who the very nature and character of who he is. It's the rejection of what God has made that is good, right, and perfect. He can't be there. 
when we look at this passage, we can say something like, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a lie, Simon. It's just a little lie. It's not like it was, I mean, he didn't, they didn't kill anybody. They just lied. It says, you did not lie to a man, but you lied to who? To God. As a matter of fact, I won't go into all of it. We want to talk about the Holy Spirit being God. This is actually one of those big passages that talks about that you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. It's actually proclaiming, Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit is God. Something just to keep in your back pocket, chew on that later, do what you want with that. But here's the thing. It makes sense that we would say that lying's not a big deal because we always want to justify ourselves to make light of our faults, don't we? We like to point out other people's faults, but we don't like to point out ours. Talk to your kids, and if, you're, if you have a, multiple kids or you're around little kids, and they say, well, this person did this to me, and then you say, well, didn't you do that at one time? I say, well, that was different because, and they give you this really good reason as to why it was okay that they sinned or they did something wrong. Do you know what we're doing in that moment? We are literally taking on the same idea that God has. And they say, well, they sinned against me, so that makes it wrong because I'm right. The difference is that God is right and we think we're right. We're actually wrong. And that's kind of the issue. See, God has always laid his cards on the table. He has never hidden his hatred for sin. He has never backed away from it. He has never shied away from it. He has always shown us that sin is horrible and that it it keeps us from him. And he has always shown us that he will punish sin and that the punishment for sin is always death all the way back in the Garden of Eden. I asked this question, I just like to ask people, what was the first death in the Bible? And if, if you think about it, it was actually two innocent animals. Adam and Eve had sinned, they rejected God, they ate from the tree, and that they tried to cover themselves in their shame with like leaves and stuff, but that wasn't, that wasn't going to be sufficient, that wasn't going to cover their shame, that wasn't going to cover their guilt. And we see that God then takes two innocent animals, kills them, and uses their skins to make them clothing. Sin always leads to death. Sin will be punished by death. And so we see that this is a a mega theme throughout the entire Bible. Romans say, for the wages of sin is death. We know that. The Bible says it. It's not hiding those very ideas. This kind of event with Ananias and Sapphira, it's actually not that uncommon in the Bible. And we have different examples that take place that we can look at to understand. And we see it happens in a different times and different places. But one of the things, that, the, the things that we see with these kinds of events, it seems to take place around times when God is starting something new with His people. That He is doing something with His people and He shows sin and what happens when sin enters this new thing. In Leviticus 10, we see that God is establishing the priesthood that's going to take place, that the the sacrificial system to have your sins forgiven was being laid out by God, and he was showing this. And so we see that that takes place with Aaron. That's Moses' brother, like Moses in the Red Sea. Um, That's who that guy is, Aaron, and he has two sons. And God tells them exactly how to give an offering, exactly what that looks like, exactly how they should do that. And what we see is that his two sons don't listen to God. They don't do what God says. They do it their own way in a different way. And as they are taking the fire to the altar, the fire pours out from the altar and consumes them both and they die. They disregarded God's holiness And they felt as though they had a better way to do it. And if God is perfect 
and holy and right in all that he does. We need to trust and obey him. This is God's people, God's family, God's chosen people that he is working through. And he's saying, you need to trust what I say, that there is a way to do this right. When it comes to the sacrificial system, we'll see later in the Bible that there's going to be a lot revolving around how that sacrificial system takes place and how sins can be forgiven, and it all leads to Christ. It all gets us there. And he's saying, you must do it this way. You don't see it all. I do. You need to believe that I know it's right. In 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 7, the Ark of the Covenant was not with the people. It was actually this other guy, Yuzik's uh, uh, house, and it was there for a long time. David realized that. He says, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant back uh, to God's people, and it was being transported. And so there was all these ways that they were told that you can you know, use the Ark and what to do with it and how it works. But what, adds, what ends up happening is these animals are pulling the cart. The Ark's on top of the cart. It looked like the Ark was going to slip off, although it never did. And this guy, Yuzig, uh, reaches out to kind of stabilize it in a very innocent, loving way, wants to stabilize it and to keep it from falling, and he touches it, and he dies immediately. People say, that's not cool. Why is that happening? It's because we don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand who He is and His very nature. See, the Ark of the Covenant would be the ark where God's presence would go forth with the people, that they would take that into battle and they would win the battle and that that was going to be in the holy of holies where God would reside. That's what it represented. And so God is pure. Impurity can't be among him. Even though he wanted to do it for the right reasons, he was impure. And as soon as he got close to God to touch where the presence was, he died. He did not trust and believe that God. It was as though he was trying to help God. And let me tell you something. God doesn't need our help because He's God and He is complete and He can do all of it on His own and He always has and He always will, even in the sanctification process, even in the salvation, even in justification, even in glorification. He is the one that does it all. He does not need our help. We bring the problem, not the solution. We need to understand that. And what we saw is that man was consumed by God's holiness if we look at Joshua 7, 10 through 26, it's when God is giving the Israelites a land. They were going to give them this victory, but there was one area that stood in the way, and it was the, it was the city of Jericho with the huge walls. And so God was finally going to give the land to their people, this, this people without a land. God said, I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. It will be amazing. It was the one last people that were in the way. And he gives them this crazy way to defeat them. You're going to walk around for seven days and you're going to blow your trumpets. It didn't make sense, but God knew how it needed to be done. So God would receive the glory. And then he said, when you take that city, when you win that battle, do not take any of the spoils, treasures, anything for yourself. Burn it all, get rid of it all. But there was one man, his name was Achan. And Achan decided that he was going to take some of the loot, some of the plunder with him, that he wanted it, and it was be buried under his tent. But it was later found out and revealed by God what had happened. And as soon as that happened, it says they all found out they brought him there, and he was, he was killed. He was stoned to death because he didn't believe God. He didn't trust God. And he wanted more than what God had to offer. Now, think about this. All of these stories, these weren't people outside of God's people. These were all a part of his family. God expects his people, his children, 
to listen to and to trust Him in everything. See, God does this at key starting points to show the seriousness of sin and that it cannot be among God's people. It's, he's setting a precedence to start with. It's His expectations of sin and the effects that sin have, and that we should understand that God's people, His holy people, should be different than the rest of the world. As God is starting His church, He needs His people to know that sin will not be tolerated. Yes, it has been forgiven. Yes, they are new creations, but sin will not be tolerated. See, God wants us to reflect Him, and it tells us that. If we go to Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, that you should be set apart, that you should look different. See, he says that, and you're like, well, that's the Old Testament, Simon. That changed with the New Testament. Well, let me just take you to the New Testament to understand that that is a a theme for God's people for all times. It doesn't change. It doesn't stop. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, he says this, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then he quotes Leviticus. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This doesn't change. I say this a lot, and I'm going to say it even more. God cares how you live. God cares how you live your life. But what we do is we bathe ourselves in this cheap grace at times and think that He doesn't care about sin. And when he judges it, we freak out like he's acting out of character, like he's being somebody different. See, Romans talks about why God is patient, why God holds back. In uh, Romans 2, 4 through 5, it actually says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's saying, I at times am so patient, am so kind, am so full of grace, am so full of mercy. Why? Not because I don't care, because I want you to see my grace and mercy and kindness that would lead you to repent of that sin, that thing that you're not trusting me, that thing that you're not believing me. He he wants you to live a life that reflects Him. See, we were made in the image of God to show the world who He is. It's meant to draw us near to God. Because the truth is this, He should judge us. We should just be like Ananias and Sapphira. We should be praising God that he doesn't do that because of his great grace and his love for us. But we let his patience make light of sin as though he doesn't care at all. See, Peter's going to go on and and later say, and and maybe he's thinking about this as he's writing these sections in uh, 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you 
out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're a royal royal priesthood. We're different. It says that we are a holy, a set-apart nation, that we don't look like the other nations of the world, that we act differently, that we value different things, that we value what God values, and we hate what God hates. We are to be set apart from the rest of the world. And what you see is that Ananias and Sapphira were acting like the world. They weren't being set apart. They were looking just like it. And they're saying, we're a part of God's family. And this is what God looks like. And they're giving a false representation of who God is and what he values and what he looks like. And they are lying about God and they are lying to God. And God said, no, that will not be. We don't do these things because it saves us. Hear me on that. It's not that we've earned our salvation because we're, we're, we're being holy and we're looking like... That's, we don't do it because it saves us. We do it because we've been saved. And we do it because we've been filled with the Spirit of God to reflect Him to the rest of the world that they may be drawn to Him through God. Well, here's kind of my question today as we kind of come towards the end of this section. Are you making light of sin in your life? Are you living in such a way as though you think that God doesn't care about how you live your life? Do you think that God is uninterested in what happens in your life? If He is an up-close and personal and relational God, He cares about every aspect of your life. Do you think that it doesn't matter how you live? I would call you today to understand that while we are not able to be holy, pause, He has sent His Son so we could be holy. Jesus is our holiness. He covers us with His righteousness, with His holiness. So now we can come close to God. Though we are impure, His blood covers us, which allows us to be with the holy God of the universe who is pure, like, we, before we had no other option than to sin, but now because of the Holy Spirit residing in us, that God dwells in us, we don't have to sin. We don't choose to sin. We choose to sin because we want to. And God's saying, you shouldn't want to. You don't, I don't want you to want that. I want you to reflect me. I want you to be like me. I want you to be like my son. I want you to live in the newness and the holiness that I've given you through my son. Let us confess our sins. Lay them before God, knowing that He has called us to be more than we were. I mean, when you think about it, and I want to go back to the original analogy. When you think about God, do you treat Him like a lion that you're slapping in the face, expecting Him to do nothing? Because here's the beauty of the cross and what Jesus did for us. Though you may think that God hasn't done anything, as you slap him in the face with the sin that you are living in. He poured out his wrath on his son. The response of a lion attacking us should have been for us, but instead Jesus stepped into that place and his son felt the full weight and wrath of God, the separation from God, the brokenness of not being connected to the Father 
the torture and the punishment and the death that we rightfully deserve, that he poured that out. Why? Because he loves you so you could be free, so you wouldn't be a slave to the sin in your life anymore, that we could be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Let us be grateful for the life that was laid down so we could be saved and have a new life. Let us pray. Jesus, I thank you for this passage, though it may be difficult to understand that we would have just a glimpse of your holiness and your righteousness, that we would see sin for what it is, that it is to not trust and believe you, that you are so much bigger than we give you credit for, that we would lift you up higher that we would see our sins as areas of distrust and disbelief in who you are, and that we would kill those. Holy Spirit, convict us of sins today that are in our life, that we would lay those down, that we would confess those to you and know that your Son has died for those sins. Let us show the world your greatness and your mercy and your love. We love you. We pray all these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.